Last week we finished 2 Corinthians 3, which was talking about the New Covenant. And I'm going to back up to, let's pick it up at 3.12, and I'm just going to read through the end of 3, because 4 starts with a therefore. So I'll pick it up at 2 Corinthians 3.12, I'll read through chapter 3, just whoosh, and then we'll start chapter 4. So, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Interesting, actually, go back to verse 13. I just picked something up I didn't see the first time. It says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You all understand the shiny face. Moses goes up to the mountain to get the second set of tablets. And when he comes down, his face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. So in Moses' case, what you are looking at is someone who is walking in the new covenant, but is delivering the old. So he's got the tablets of stone. And remember we talked last time, the tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. So Moses is bringing down these tablets of stone to the people who have hearts of stone, but his face is shining. So he's been in the presence of God, and he has seen the outcome of all of this stuff. But the Israelites have rejected having the Torah written on their hearts instead of on tablets of stone. So what Paul is saying here is Moses covered his face so that the Israelites wouldn't see when they looked on him the thing that they had rejected. So Moses covers his face so the Israelites are not looking upon the transformation that could have been theirs had they not said when God was speaking to them, stop, Moses, you go up and talk to him, find out what he's got to say, bring it back to us and we'll obey you. Had they not done that, then I don't know that their faces necessarily would have shown, but they would have had the Torah written on their heart as God intended, and they would have stepped off, and it would have been a completely different 1,500 years. So the veil then is, as they're looking at Moses, they are not looking at the thing they rejected, which is someone who has been in the presence of God. And the other thing is, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What is being brought to an end? Covenant written on tablets of stone. Paul has been talking all through chapter 3 about how the old covenant is being brought to an end. It's obsolete, which means that there is something better in the wings that you don't have yet, but it is being brought to an end. And we talked extensively last time about the tenses of the verbs. It is not done away with because we are not yet living fully under the new covenant, but it is being passing away, and that's what Paul is saying. Even at Sinai, when Moses comes down with the tablets, what Paul is saying is Moses didn't want them to see the result of what is passing away. In other words, the covenant 
as it will be in the end when the Torah is written where it's supposed to be. The new covenant is still not yet in effect. And what Paul will say later on is that we have an earnest, which is the Holy Spirit. And that reflected in Ephesians 1 is that we have an earnest, which tells us that we have an inheritance. We have not yet taken possession of it. What we're saying is every time a covenant is cut, blood is shed. And what he's saying is, symbolically, this is the blood of the new covenant. He will actually shed his own blood the next day. He will take his blood and go up to the tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy. So the covenant at that point has been cut, which means that that covenant is now binding. But there's a whole bunch of stuff. Israel coming back to the land, the Torah written on your heart, uh, Israel and Judah reunited. All those are part of the new covenant. And those things have not yet come to fruition. An example we use is when you sign a contract to buy a house. You sign the contract. At that point, you bought the house. But you wait until closing to take possession of it. So we are in the period between the contract has been signed, the covenant has been cut, the blood has been shed, but we are waiting now for the closing, which I believe will be the return of Messiah, when we take possession. And that period has lasted 2,000 years. Let me start at 12 now. I'm going to read right through. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And notice again the tense of the verb. We are being transformed, not have been transformed. This is a process, if you will, which is still ongoing. Chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Who is we? We is Paul and his traveling companions. Because he will use we and you, the addressees of the letter. So as we read through this, he's going to talk about you, who are the addressees of the letter, the Corinthians, and he's going to talk about we, who are his traveling companions. Remember I said two times ago that apparently somebody has called Paul's apostleship into question. And the metaphor I use is, they said, gee, this guy looks kind of accident prone. Every place he goes, they throw him out of the synagogue, there are riots, he gets beaten, he gets arrested, he even got stoned one time. This is the guy you're following? And so Paul started off the letter by explaining that the suffering he is going through is for their sake. Now he is back to that riff, okay? Because he's going to go back again to talking about suffering, and he's talking about we who suffer, and he will talk about we and you in the same sentence. So you as the Corinthians, we is Paul and his companions. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, we have been afflicted in our ministry. 
but we have not lost heart. We, Paul and his companions. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So what he's again saying is somebody has been slandering him. And what he's saying is, I will not stoop to manipulating the word of God in order to win an argument. I have told you the truth. I will continue to tell you the truth. And oh, by the way, parenthetically, those who are distressing you are manipulating the word of God. We won't do that. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. So I will suggest that there are perhaps two groups of people for whom it is veiled. Group one, the Orthodox Jews. Remember, he talked back at the end of chapter 3 that whenever Moses was read to the Jews, they had a veil over their heart. I will suggest also there are people who hear his gospel and don't believe it among the Gentiles, and they're veiled also, and they're perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So who is perishing according to that sentence? Unbelievers, those who are following the God of this world, which is Satan. The God that the Hebrews worship with veiled heart is not the God of this world. The being that we know as God the Father, and they know it as God the Father too. In verse 4 here, we're talking about pagans. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Yeshua Messiah as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. With ourselves as your servants. Again, notice, us and you. You being the Corinthian church, us being Paul and his companions. So verse 5 again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Yeshua Messiah as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua Messiah. So what he's saying is, my ministry here is light shining out of the darkness was shed upon you it's shed abroad and some people don't get it again going back to moses now so the metaphor he's using is moses's face shines so he has the light of the spirit of god on his face but israel when they rejected the word of god in, written on their hearts in favor of tablets of stone could not see that light Paul is saying that the gospel that he is carrying forward is light analogously. And there are people who cannot see the light in Paul either. Paul is saying that the God of this world has blinded people. And I'm asserting that it's pagans. In other parts of the Bible, specifically the prophets, as Israel is about to go into exile, God himself blinds them. So you have two groups of blind people, if you will. You have the Hebrews in exile, which is both Judah and Ephraim, and they have been blinded so that they don't see the glory of the light of God. But God did that blinding because he was sending them into exile. And I've said lots of times, I won't go through it here, but exile is therapeutic. God has not given up on his people. 
He sends them into exile, and the exile he sends them into is designed to correct the thing that caused God to send them into exile. So when they treat Hagar shamefully in the incident with Hagar and Ishmael, God says, huh, you don't know how to treat the stranger. Hagar, Hagar, the stranger. That's what her name means, the stranger. You don't know how to treat the stranger. So I'm going to make you strangers in Egypt. And then when they come out of Egypt, he says, remember, you were strangers in a strange land. Now treat strangers properly. And when they go into idolatry, fine. You guys want to do idols? We'll do idols. I'll send you to Idol Central. I'm sending you to Babylon. And we'll get idols wrung out of you. So every exile is therapeutic. But the one who has blinded the Hebrews, Judah and Ephraim, is God, not the God of this world. The one who's blinded the pagans is the God of this world. We've just established there's two kinds of blindness. One done by God, and that's done to national Israel. And that doesn't depend necessarily on individuals, it depends on the nation. So when the nation is getting ready to go into exile, God blinds them all. Daniel was a righteous man. Daniel grew up in Babylon. So when the nation got swept off to Babylon, it took Daniel, who's righteous, along with everybody else. That blindness is a national blindness. Blindness of pagans, you could argue, is an individual blindness because they have believed the God of this world, and the only reason you would believe him is if you wanted to. Now, that's true theoretically, but I don't think it's true practically because what Satan operates on is deception. And if he deceives a critical mass of the elites of a nation, people will get dragged along. Just like right now, half of the United States believes that the United States, just like Nazi Germany, is ripping children away from their parents. And it's a deception. But it's a deception that a whole bunch of people have bought not because each of them has thought about it, but because people that they trust have said so. So I tend to think that when they stand in front of the great white throne, some of them are going to say, I don't want anything of you, God. I don't like you. I think you're a jerk. And they will go into the outer darkness. Others will recognize the, the deception they have been under and will fall on their face in front of them. I don't know who those are. I don't know which is which. But I'm not quite so harsh about people who get fooled because, I mean, that's what happens in this world. Finding out what's true is really hard. You know, I just made a statement of what I think is true. It's probably something yet again different. So being sure of your truth is difficult. So verse 7, For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Who has this treasure in jars of clay? Paul and his traveling companions. And to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Yeshua, so that the life of Yeshua may be manifest in our bodies. Let's come back and unpack that. Remember this in the context of the subject of the letter. Somebody has apparently convinced the Corinthian church or a chunk of the Corinthian church 
that Paul can't be genuine because look at all the trouble he's always in. And so Paul is now defending himself. And he is saying that the glory that I am carrying with me, which is the light of the gospel of Christ, is carried in a clay jar. And that clay jar is subject to be broken. This clay jar, which is me, which is carrying the gospel and the light, I have this great treasure inside this jar, but the jar is subject to all sorts of stuff. It gets crushed, it gets beaten, it gets afflicted. All those kinds of things are happening to the jar, but it doesn't tarnish the message and the light that I carry. And furthermore, the fact that this glory is carried in this clay jar prevents me from in any way being tempted to take credit for the light that I'm carrying. That's the metaphor he's saying there. Guys, you've heard that I've been afflicted. You've heard that I've been beaten. You've heard that I've been persecuted. You've heard that I've caused riots. Well, that's because of this light that I'm carrying, and the light is in this clay jar, and some people can't see past the clay. Pick it up at 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Yeshua, so that the life of Yeshua may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Yeshua's sake, so that the life of Yeshua may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So, don't think we've talked in this particular study, but other places Paul uses an agricultural metaphor. And he speaks of the body as a seed. That seed gets planted in the earth, and from the seed, when it gets planted in the earth, brings forth a plant that does not, on the surface, resemble the seed itself. So you take an acorn, you plant it in the earth, and you smooth it over, and you water it, and you tend it, and you put the sun on it, and all that kind of stuff, and God willing, up comes an oak tree. The oak tree doesn't look anything like an acorn. And Paul uses that same metaphor of the resurrection body. So the resurrection body doesn't look anything like the seed that gets planted in the grave. So Yeshua talks about everlasting life. Did Yeshua live forever? No, he died. And he was then raised from the dead to everlasting life. So with us. We are promised everlasting life in the Messiah. And in order to get that everlasting life, just like Yeshua, we will die, and the body that we have now, which is a seed, will go into the earth, and out of that seed will be raised a resurrection body, which will be immortal. So what Paul is saying here is, I am carrying the death of Yeshua, because just like him, at some point, if he doesn't come back first, I'm going to die. But I'm also carrying in me the life of Yeshua, because I know that I will be raised from the dead to be with him. So this idea that I'm carrying the death of Yeshua and I'm carrying the life of Yeshua is perfectly consistent. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a transition from the realm of death to the realm of life. And in that you go through the water and just like a child is born into the world with a flush of water out of his mother, so too you are born into new life as you come up out of the water. All the way down to verse 13, maybe. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, 
we also believe and so we also speak. And by the way, that is a quote from Psalm 116, verse 10. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Yeshua will raise us also with Yeshua and bring us with you into his presence. Notice, bring us with you. Us being Paul and his traveling companions, you being the Corinthian church. And this is what I was just talking about. Paul accepts that he is going to undergo bodily death. But he expects, just as God raised Yeshua from the dead, that he also will be raised from the dead. And at that point, he will be with Yeshua. And oh, by the way, those who believe, the Corinthians are also going to undergo the same experience. Verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. For it is all for your sake. And it, in this case, I am going to suggest, is all of the suffering that Paul has gone through in his missionary journeys. So it is all for the sake of the Corinthian church, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Verse 16. So we, Paul and his companions, do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Okay, let's unpack that now. So what he's saying is, our outer nature is wasting away, which is to say the physical body that has been carrying him around is going away. It's decaying. Our inner nature is being renewed by the presence of God, by the Spirit within him. For this slight momentary affliction, the things that he's been talking about, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what I will suggest to you that means is what Paul is doing is he is packing information into the seed which is going to be planted in the grave so that as he is raised from the dead, the oak tree that grows out of that seed is going to be more glorious because of the information that he put in it in this world. The question becomes, what is the purpose of this life? Why didn't we just get immediately made in the new heaven and the new earth, and, and move along. The purpose of the life we are in now is to build the seed that is going to be the thing from which our resurrection body is going to grow. A seed is nothing but information. The seed has in it all of the information needed to construct an oak tree. The fact that you know the, the shell and, and the, the physical matrix in which that information is carried does not go into the new tree. So when you plant an acorn, that seed is completely consumed. Information is eternal. Let me explain it that way. So for example, you've all got computers and phones and all that kind of stuff. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, we used to have punched paper tape. I used to program a computer with punched paper tape. 
and that t paper tape had information on it that contained the program that the computer was going to run. I could take that same information and then put it on a floppy disk if I had a later version of the computer that took a floppy disk. The information doesn't change, the medium on which it is recorded changes. So now I would carry it on a thumb drive. The information still has not changed. The only thing has changed is the matrix on which the information is being carried. So you have an acorn. Most of the mass of an acorn has nothing to do with anything. I mean, used for food and all sorts of other things, I mean, secondary uses. But the information that is going to make an oak tree is a very small part of an acorn. The information is spirit. It has no body. It attaches itself to an acorn, or attaches itself to your DNA, or attaches itself to a floppy disk, or it attaches itself to a paper tape, or it attaches itself to whatever. The information is not the medium. He says, some oak trees are going to be more glorious than other oak trees. That's exactly what he's saying. And he says that other places in terms of crowns. If you built on the earth and you built with wood, hay, and stubble, or you built with gold, silver, and precious jewels, the things that you have built will be burned, and the stuff that survives that fire of transition will show up with you in heaven. And oh, by the way, if all you've got is wood, hay, and stubble, the information that is you, spirit and soul, that will make it through, but it will smell like smoke. Because you don't have anything to take with you. And Paul is saying that I have been working to build with gold and precious gems so that when my oak tree, my resurrection body, grows in heaven, I'm going to have a really good one because I have been planting and putting information into the seed, which is the body that is going to be planted into the grave. So what he's doing is he's setting up in this life the seed from which his resurrection body is going to grow into the next life. And again, this is all metaphorical. Yeshua uses the same metaphor. Paul uses the metaphor. It's a metaphor throughout the Bible. It's the information. And the information, remember, is independent of the vehicle on which it is carried. So the information that is you, your spirit and soul, is independent of the physical body that it resides in. The physical body is going to go into the ground and decay, just like the acorn goes into the ground and decays, but from that is going to grow a resurrection body. And understand that we all have different roles. We are not all apostles. Some of us are teachers. The fact that Paul was called to do this is what equipped him to do it. We are not all called to do that. We are called to do different things. And the degree of faithfulness with which you perform the things that God has given you to do will determine your reward. You don't have to be beaten in order to get your crowns in heaven. You just need to do what God put you here to do. I mean, if everybody was Paul, we'd all be at each other's throat. It'd be a circular rock-throwing squad. And all of this, remember, is in the context of somebody has convinced a chunk of the Corinthian church that anybody that gets into this much trouble can't be from God. And so what Paul is explaining is, no, that's not quite true. The fact that I am in this much trouble 
while it doesn't prove that I'm from God, it doesn't disqualify me either. So the last thing, and we'll finish up here, starting in verse 16 again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what he is saying is, the spiritual creates the physical. Remember back in Genesis 1, all of this universe that we inhabit was created by the Word of God. The Word of God and God and the presence of God is what is real. This is passing away. It is not eternal. We know that from other passages of Scripture, that this is all going to be melted down and reformed. So what Paul is saying is, I am not placing too much weight on all of the stuff that is happening to me and all of the stuff I can see and all of the intimidation that I go through. I'm not paying a lot of attention to that because that's not what's real. That's, that's a bad way to say that. Let me back up. It is real. It is real. It is not unreal. But what he's saying is it's not eternal. This creation will serve the purpose for which God made it. And then once it has served that purpose, it will be broken down, reformed, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This will pass away. And it will be replaced by something else. So Paul is saying this existence is important. This world is important. Because this is where God has put us and has given us stuff to do. And based on how we do and what we do, that will determine our place in the world to come. So it is important, but it's not eternal. It's like you go to a play, and they put up the, the props, you know, the, the backdrops and all that kind of stuff. Well, the backdrops are not important. They are simply there so the actors have something to play in front of so that they can create a mood for you. Oh, they're in a forest now. But the props themselves are not what's important. It's the actors that are important, and the props will pass away. And that's what this world is. And don't get the idea that the things that you go through here are not important. They are important, but they're not eternal. There's a difference there. It is important because God's put you here, and you need to be here because you've got stuff to do. It is, however, not eternal. It's going to pass away. So don't fall in love with the transitory fall in love instead with that which is not seen, which is the eternal. And again, your body is important. Don't ever short sell it, because God made it, and he made it for a purpose, and it is important. But it's not everlasting. Et ta